Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to all of our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. Now, if you are a fan of the U.S. Supreme Court, <laughs> because, you know, if you're really into that, <laughs> like, you're in luck. This is the show for you. So because we are at the um, near the close of this year's um, Supreme Court term, it's ending uh, at the end of June, and um, typically the big decisions that we everybody's waiting for, the most controversial ones, the ones that, you know, really kind of make history take pivots, those types of things get handed down and made public sometime typically in the next oh, six weeks or so, right? So um, two decisions that we are really, really interested in um, this year, this term, are um, Students for Fair Admissions versus Howard and Students for Fair Admissions versus uh, University of North Carolina. Now, a lot has been made of these cases and what they mean for the future of admissions in higher education. Um, oral arguments were argued um, last fall um, here in D.C., and now we're just waiting. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. But we do know that there's a drop date <laughs> like at some point. They've got to do it by a certain point. So um, I'm very, very excited um, to introduce my guest today, Dr. Sonia um, Chawan. Mm -hmm. Sonia Chawan Smith, my yes. colleague and counterpart from the American Dental Education Association. Um, she is, uh, she works upstairs in our office building. We hang out a, a, a lot, have a lot of um, work that really crosses over between our two organizations. And I am delighted that I have finally been able to get her on today's show. So welcome, Sonia. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Dr. Greenhill. I'm excited to have this conversation. And I uh, am eagerly awaiting the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, decisions, along with everyone else in June of this year. Yeah. So I want to set the stage and we had a whole conversation um, about this to our, our viewers and listeners, um, because, you know, so much has been made of these cases related to affirmative action. And so I kind of wanted to address that small bit before we get into the meat of the cases and what the cases are really about. So. Sonia, can you tell us what is affirmative action? So I, when I think about affirmative action, we think more of it as a concept. Um, really, I think it was in the night. It was like 1961 when President Kennedy first used the concept of affirmative action. And basically, it was part of an executive order related to federal contracting. Right. And so in that, it basically said that uh, contractors will take affirmative action. Right 
to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated um, during the employment process without regard to race, creed, I think it was color and national origin, okay? Mm -hmm. And so the concept really initially applied to federal contracting, but we have used it as a concept that, in the larger sense, Lisa, that says that it is um, basically procedures that we're going to use to ensure that there is, uh, to eliminate discrimination and that there's no unlawful discrimination uh, against applicants based on protected class. And you know that a protected class is age, it is pregnancy under sex, it's uh, race, it's gender, it's, it can be disability status, it can be even be whistleblower. Um, those are some of the protected classes. But that's what people often leave out, that it has to be tied to a protected class. Because um, people oftentimes say, you know, well, I'm going to sue because you uh, and the person's under 40 because, you know, you treated me differently because I'm young. Well, that's great. But being uh, unless you're 40 or older, it's not a protected class. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. get some years on you. Uh-huh. <laughs> get some years on you. Right. So um, and oftentimes we hear, you know, that perhaps affirmative action didn't work or doesn't work the way, you know, folks thought, think it should, thought it should, those types of things. So who are the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action and why? Well, I, one of my other gigs in life is I've actually taught at a law school, at two law schools. And one of the things that I always found interesting when I would ask students, who are the primary benefits of affirmative action, quote, quote, they would definitely say, uh, African-Americans would always be the first group, but they never actually talked about the group that has benefited most, which is basically white women, right? And so uh, when you think about affirmative action, remember that it's really a benign concept term. There's a legal part of it, but we don't use it in the traditional legal way that it, uh, around federal contractors always. We've expanded it to admissions and other forms of hiring and basically affirmative action is supposed to address systemic racism and sexism. So that gets back to the gender part. So when you talk about affirmative action policies, have you noticed that people rarely bring up gender or sex discrimination when you think about it? So, but we know that there's data that truly does show us that the greatest impact in terms of people who benefited the most from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, where it says that we can't discriminate based on race and gender and religion, you know, national origin that is has been white women. Um, I pulled some data and it says that um, although women made up 35.3% of people receiving bac- baccalaureate degrees in 1960 before affirmative action policies, okay, were established in 1982, women were no longer underrepresented today. Uh, when it comes to uh, attaining college degrees. Actually, uh, let's see, if we look just, let's say, let's say 2012, it says the group's enrollment in colleges and universities for the first time women outpaced uh, men was in 19, yeah, nine, was, was in 2012. So 70, 72% of white women enrolled compared to 62% of white men in 2012. Okay, so those patterns really continue today. Um, We can think about it in terms of 
also not just women out, uh, number of women graduating from college in terms of undergraduate degrees. We see it in dentistry here uh, at the U.S. Dental Schools. I think it was approximately four years ago for the first time that the number of women um, enrolling outnumbered the number of men. And so by and far, the largest benefit of affirmative action has been white women under the concept of you're not going to discriminate based on gender and you're going to take affirmative actions, affirmative action steps to ensure that women are adequately represented in the workforce. Mm-hmm. You see it in pay gaps, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. We know that, what is it, something like um, white women still out, in 2019, I think white women still out earned black women, like it was like $840 to $704. And so um, those that data is true. It's not to say that that's a terrible thing, but what it does say is that we enter a time, and this is just Sonia's opinion, not her employer's position, um, (laughs) that we have entered a time where we use race to divide us. It's a divisionary tactic. Uh, We aren't going to talk about women oftentimes because Oftentimes, people that are per- passing these laws, which are over over majority men, they're going home to their wives oftentimes. And mm-hmm. so they're not going to get up and stand up and talk about uh, women. Not that we don't see attacks on women. We know that we can go to the case law there. We not even going to go there today. But I wanted to really stress with you how when we talk about affirmative action, if you ask someone about affirmative action, what's the first word that comes to mind? Race. <laughs> yes. Yes. Race. Yeah. Race. And wow. normally black people. Peach. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, that is kind of the um that's the narrative, right? That's, that's the, the narrative. narrative around affirmative action. And you know, for folks that are, are listening and watching, so you said how many years ago was it, Sonia, that that um women it was enrolled men? It was really 2012. It was 2012 where there was just like a sharp, sharp distance Mm -hmm. that it wasn't even close anymore. Wow. So, of course, you know that that happened to us in the mid 80s. (laughs) So we are now over 80 percent women um, in the the colleges, U.S. colleges of veterinary medicine um, here. And so. Um, yeah, this is these are real issues. Oh, at, yeah. in, in dental in, at the U.S. dental schools, it was like approximately four years ago that oh, wow. it was only four years ago. Uh, but we're starting to see, you know, Lisa, that's another show uh, around women and men and men of color uh, oh, yeah. and enrollment. That's another um, another show. But it was really around four years ago that women exceeded men in the application process. And so now. Of course, we're starting to see women exceed men in graduation rates. So yeah, yeah. So um, before we move on to specifically talk about the cases, I have to apologize, folks, because again, Sonia and I are good buds, and so I just jumped all in here with the questions and did not even allow her to introduce herself. So we're gonna rewind just a little bit. And give Sonia an opportunity to tell us a little bit about herself and her work. Oh, that's so funny, Lisa. Um, Lisa and I hang out regularly to have these philosophical conversations and debates. And um, so, uh, no, no problem, Lisa. I am Sonia Smith, and I am the 
interim chief of staff at the American Dental Education Association, and I am also the chief diversity officer. I've been at the American Dental Education Association, ADEA, as we call it, for five years. Prior to that, I worked at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center as an assistant vice chancellor for student affairs, enrollment management, and associate professor. Uh, for six years, I was at the University of Nebraska Medical Center as an associate vice chancellor for academic affairs, the chief uh the chief um, student affairs officer and an associate professor in the College of Public Health teaching um, global health and human rights. So that was fun. And I did do some malpractice um, law things with medical students and things like that. And been a dean of admissions at Vanderbilt Law School. I'm a Vanderbilt Law graduate, uh, a graduate of Vanderbilt University, the um, Peabody. I have a doctorate in higher education. I have a law degree from Vanderbilt. I, have um, two master's degrees, a master's in education. And I, last year, I finished a master's in global affairs from Arizona State Thunderbird School of Global Management. And I could keep yes, certified, officer, you know, so, certified <laughs> civil rights investigator, <laughs> Title IX hearing officer. I could keep going. And so, so, so I for have, everybody to be clear. Yeah. Sonia is that chick. Okay. <laughs> well, I just have been really blessed with lots of opportunities and I'm a perpetual nerd, Lisa. You <laughs> Which is why we are good pals because uh, the nerds love to hang out. So, but yes, she is really that chick. And I um, am so honored to uh, get to work alongside you. Um, so let's talk about SCOTUS cases. So uh, students for fair admissions, they, they kind of got together, they sued Harvard and they sued UNC, um, orals, um, arguments last fall. So who are these students for fair admissions? Okay. So let's, let's, let's back up a little. So, uh, well, maybe not. So, okay. So let's, I wanted to just say that, remember that all of this kind of like started with Baki, the Baki case. Yeah. Remember, um, it was the medical student that basically said that there he was being discriminated against as a white student mm-hmm. and they were holding like 16 slots uh, for black students. And basically the the key proposition that you have to remember from that case basically is two things. One is that you can't have quotas, right? You can't have set asides. You can have like goals and things like that, but you can't have quotas where you have a separate admissions system and you're setting aside a specific number of of, of slots for a racial uh, group. But the case also did, though, show that there are some cases in which when you use what constitutionally they call strict scrutiny under mm-hmm. certain conditions, you could use race as a factor. So those are kind of like when I think about the Baki case that kind of led up to this in the 1980s that really get us to where we are. So I'm going to try to kind of like quickly take you through kind of like the cases and I'll try to pause at the end of each case. OK, <laughs> so the first one, as we know, is Students for Fair Admission. And basically they're a nonprofit group who opposes racial per- preferences in the admissions process. So they basically allege that Harvard and UNN, U, uh, University of North Carolina, Harvard and UNC violated, violated Title VI of the Civil Rights Act by intentionally discriminating uh, the Harvard case against Asian Americans. And in the 
a, a Chapel Hill case against whites and Asian Americans. OK, so they say you're intentionally discriminating against Asian Americans in the Harvard case. You're doing what they call racial balancing to get a what they believe is a predetermined racial mix. OK, so they're saying that you're not just using race as a factor, as one of many factors, but they're saying race is the determining factor in this and basically that if you are a person of color and you apply and they use this race as a factor that you're going to get admitted. And then um, basically what they're trying to do is if you remember overturn the Gruder cases, if you remember mm -hmm. Gruder and Grotz. And so Gruder uh, is the case that basically said where the Supreme Court came back and said, you can use, you can be race sensitive in the admissions process. And in some cases, mm -hmm. You can consider race as one of many other factors, and that is indeed lawful. And so remember that with the Carr-Harvard case that it initially Harvard prevailed in the initial suit that uh, students for fair admissions filed um, in the U.S. District Court, Massachusetts, basically said that Harvard uh, did not violate Title VI. Of, uh, of the Civil Rights Act, excuse me, Title VI, which prohibits uh, racial discrimination for those receiving federal fundings. And we know everyone's receiving financial aid there. Right. So, so uh, they basically said the district court that uh, Harvard is using a multi-tiered process and it's okay uh, that the officers, can, the admissions officers consider a single factor in many otherwise far-reaching ways, and that's okay, that the dean of admissions does share like what he sees as kind of like the goal mm -hmm. for the student body in terms of the racial composition, but it's not a quote, it's not a set aside. If you don't meet it, it's not the end of the world. And um, he, uh, they also basically say that um, that the allegation that that Harvard is violating Title VI and discriminating against Asians in terms of doing any racial balancing is uh, and doing and using race as a determining fact factor is not true, and that uh, students for fair admissions also said that Harvard was Harvard could use other race neutral uh, criteria. In other words, they could basically achieve and have a diverse, a racially diverse student body if they use socioeconomic status, for example. So there are all these wonderful experts who made lots of money doing this, I'm sure. But they basically showed that if they used socioeconomic status as a solution mm -hmm. and not this race amongst these other factors, that it would reduce not only the racial diversity of the uh, student body, but it would lower their entrance test scores, which was interesting, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. So um, the court used what they call strict scrutiny. Uh, and that's the constitutional standard. There's rational basis and uh, there's intermediate, which I'm not going to go into. Let's stick with strict scrutiny. And so strict scrutiny is when there's a federal or state action, it says that um, that if you're going to use a race conscious program, like, you know, in the admissions process, that it has to be not, uh, narrowly tailored to a compelling interest. Well, the compelling interest is the benefits of having a racially diverse student body. Mm -hmm. So what are those benefits, right? Yeah. yeah. And so the court had said, 
That is a compelling state interest. And what the interesting thing is, the court really in not only uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases, but uh, district court cases, they basically have yielded often usually to the higher education community to say that uh, the diversity of the student body is indeed a compelling interest, right? So they really haven't questioned that too much, I think, Mm -hmm. because there's been so much evidence and social science research uh, over time. And you have lots of employers intervening in the cases, too, to say that it is indeed a... um, uh, an important part of their business necessity mission. So they kind of like not question that. So um, in the Chapel Hill case, though, that was the I think the middle district of, of North Carolina, very similar. Like I said, uh, students for fair admissions sued and said that minority applicants um, were being admitted to the detriment of white Caucasian and Asian American applicants in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and, of course, Title VI of the Constitution. So the Equal Protection Clause basically says that we all deserve to be treated the same under the law. You can't treat us differently. Um, With UNC, uh, they also have a multi-tiered review process. It includes they have like 40 admissions criteria okay. that you have to go through there. And one of those is uh, race, ethnicity, national origin. Similarly, court use, strict scrutiny. Uh, they wrote like, I think, Lisa, their court opinion was like 155 pages. I read all 155 pages. It comes down to basically the court said that um, the that. UNC had a compelling interest in pursuing and attaining uh, a diverse student um, body, one. It says that they accomplished it in the right way in that uh, it was necessary that UNC admit and enroll a diverse student body to include racial diversity. So they specifically Mm -hmm. called out an important part of a diverse student body is racial diversity. The other part of it, it says that they engaged in a highly individualized holistic review process. And the key here is it is not mechanical. It is individualized. And that's a key key piece to make sure that it is narrowly tailored uh, and it is flexible, right? Uh, So that they could use race as one of these other factors in these 40 plus admissions criteria. So they ended up finally in saying that UNC had conducted good faith, serious consideration of race strategies that were race neutral and found no alternative to, they found no, I think the court said something like, no alternative um, at a tolerable administrative expense. What that means, Lisa, is this. You don't have to consider every possible racial neutral activity or else the analysis would never end. But you have to make a good faith, considerable effort and consider the reasonable ones. Got it. Okay. All right. So I think that gives you kind of like a high level. Yeah. 
overview of kind of like the cases. Right. So basically, we're really talking about this strict scrutiny piece. And for our viewers, I've dropped a few links. Um, uh, Wikipedia isn't always the greatest uh, scholarly source. However, it'll get you what you need today. So, So what is the central constitutional question that has has us all waiting around for the nine justices to, you know, <laughs> tell us what's now, up. <laughs> you know, um, I'm not sure that everybody agrees on that, but basically they want to know, they want to overturn Gruder, okay? Uh, the Michigan law case. And they want to ban race-conscious affirmative action programs for public and private universities, okay? okay. That's the key thing. They want to uh, they want um, the courts to say that the use of race as a plus factor in the overall holistic admissions process um, does not align with past um, precedent. And that the other thing, the other weird thing is when Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the Gruder opinion, she, for some reason, thought that it was wise to say, and I heard her say in a speech that she she regretted this, that she anticipated that in 25 years, we would no longer use race as a factor. So students for a fair admission, they're also saying it's been 25 years. Uh, it's a it's a time limit. And also when you hear about strict scrutiny, part of the constitutional question is always around when is it going to end? Yeah. You know, what is the end point? And that, I think, is a hard part um, to it, it's there's no answer to it. And when yeah. I think that troubles the justices also a lot. So I guess the, the constitutional question is if um, the use of race as a um, factor, really the way the way that each of Harvard is using it and UNC Chapel Hill, that they're using it violates the equal protection clause and doesn't treat us all the same under the law mm -hmm. and also violates title six of the civil rights act in which we're not supposed to discriminate based on race mm -hmm. and so those to me are the key constitutional questions <clears throat> um and i think you know it comes down to kind of like each of the specifics of the cases because they're similar but they're not similar right, right in right. that it could be that harvard could win and unc could could not because they separated the cases. So, and they, uh, they're they using similar processes, Lisa's, Lisa, but they're not using the same process. Right, 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 right. Okay, so, so I think we have a good kind of just broad overview, but folks are kind of freaking out, right? <laughs> About what comes next. Um, and of course, you know, during this time, we've also had the Fisher case, out of Texas, um, mm -hmm. which basically said, you know, yeah, again, um, narrowly tailored. They had these indices and race was like one element of an index that was one of several indexes used in the criteria for admission. So, you know, by the time you got all these index index numbers collapsed and crushed, like it, <laughs> Where does, you know, where is that huge benefit, right, that, that people are kind of thinking? And I think that the, the other thing that I kind of want to mention um, for some naysayers that say, okay, well, why aren't we over this yet, 
right? Why aren't we over this yet? And a few weeks ago, um, I was giving a talk to a specialty organization and, you know, I sat down and clearly we always hear like, it's been 400 years of, you know, oppression and those types of, and genocide in this country between, you know, our indigenous uh, uh, populations and African-Americans and and certainly um, more broadly. But, you know, I'm a native Virginian, so we start the counting at, uh, at, at uh, you know, like 1507 or something like that. And so that's, you know, Jamestown, here we go. And that's when the clock starts. And that from then until now was 413 years, I think mm-hmm. it was, right? And so then I sat down and said, okay, well, you know, oftentimes Gen Xers are considered the first generation, well, a late Gen Xers are considered mm-hmm. the first generation born truly free, right? After mm-hmm. kind of after the civil rights um, right. exactly. passed. Um, and 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 so um, when you kind of deduct all of that, it ends up being 14% of the entire time that all of this stuff has been going on. So, you know, like, yes, the country is 200 years old, but the shenanigans... <laughs> Race in particular have been going on for twice as long. Right. Right. So I think that it's important for folks who are always like, why aren't you over it yet? And I'm like, it has been 14% of the total time that this has been going on, at least uh, in what is now known as the United States. And also, too, the numbers haven't changed significantly. I mean, we know that in the health professions in terms of We've seen some progress from from women, but let's be honest, there's still lots of progress that needs to be made for uh, not only women, but around issues of gender identity and sexual orientation. Let's just be honest here. And so when we look at the number of graduates, uh, you know, um, individuals of color, you know, students of color, the numbers throughout the health professions have not moved significantly over the last, I'm going to just do the last 10 years. And so I mean, even when you go back to Baki and Baki was 19, I don't remember. It's like 1980. I think it was 80. It's 78. It was 78. Okay, 78. Yeah, 78. And so the numbers haven't moved significantly when you're looking at medicine, vet, dentistry, um, in terms of the graduates. And Baki, you know, I, th- I thought about this too. When someone said to me, I'm like, well, what? Because, you know, you're trying to speak lay language and not lawyer language. Right. So Baki basically said we can't use quotas. Right. Right. And then I'm going to go back to strict scrutiny because I'm going to tie this back to what you're saying. And so but then Baki said there are instances in which you can use race as a factor, but it's going to trigger trigger the highest scrutiny, the most right. the most rigorous scrutiny of the Supreme Court, which is strict scrutiny. Remember, I said rational yeah. Basis the lowest intermediate, which basically usually deals with gender and also sometimes with inheritance rights for for people whose parents are not married, if that makes any sense. And then the highest scrutiny is usually, you know, is is race is one of those. And so when Baki rule, they said you strict scrutiny. It has to be a compelling interest if you're going to use race. It is a race policy. Uh, the race and ethnicity conscious program or admissions policy uh, has to appropriately address equal opportunity consistent with the mission mm. and educational focus yeah. after having evaluated race neutral alternatives. 
The problem that we get into that people don't like for me to talk about is that if I polled the group and I said, how many of you are doing evidence-based, ongoing compliance and documenting that you have basically researched and or tried race-neutral alternatives should you be sued? Hmm. Yeah. If you have been doing that, <laughs> you are less concerned about how the Supreme Court is ruling. The Supreme Court, had, there's somewhere that it says that basically every three years, you should be determining and looking, being able to show that you have been considering race neutral alternatives, that you're using a multidisciplinary team across your campus and that you're documenting it and you're and you're doing individual research. You're looking at research that others are doing. And so uh, people have constantly asked me, what should we be doing? And I'm like, well, you should have been doing it anyway, because the court has been saying that. But we one of the things that has bothered me, Lisa, is that we have not trained our admissions teams and um, committees to do this Mm -hmm. and that our focus has been on making sure that they get the balancing right, I guess, per se, or that. They know how to use race as a factor, but that we haven't taught them to do the compliance piece. And that if I walk into your office and ask for the evidence to show that you've considered race neutral alternatives, that they're not necessarily there. And so part of the strict scrutiny test is that Harvard and Chapel Hill have to show that they have been considering, you know, race neutral pieces. Mm -hmm. That's part Mm -hmm. of strict scrutiny. And then, of course, The last piece that you and I keep talking about here is that the race conscious admissions policy is reasonably limited in time and scope. So thus the 25 years. So, you know, that's why, uh, you know, the students for fair admissions, they're like limited in time and scope. This is not limited in time and scope. And then the last one, of course, that is narrowly tailored to achieve the state's compelling interests of a diverse student body. And so going back to what you said, and so when I think about time and scope, I know Justice Connor used 25 years, but couch that time and scope, just like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Put that into the larger context Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, the, the frankly oppressive behaviors in in the U.S. and the development of the country. So, all right. Well, Sonia, we know, uh, I think it was like on Halloween, I think it was Halloween morning. Um, all the attorneys just, you know, showed up <laughs> across town here in DC, um, at the, uh, U.S. Supreme Court and, uh, they held oral arguments, um, that went on forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, normally they get like a, each side gets, I think like a half hour, you're supposed to do your thing. You get mm-hmm. a few questions and you're out of there. Um, now they usually go over the half hour, but this went, this was like a marathon um, yeah. that day. And so, and oftentimes you see um, certainly on uh, uh, web pages like uh, SCOTUS blog, which happens to be one of my favorite pl- um, places to kind of look at information about Supreme Court cases, um, you know, we're all trying to read the tea leaves. Like, so what magical thinking can we the key, ta- the key takeaways from these arguments? From the oral arguments. Okay. So um, Lisa, uh, I could uh, almost take a, a, a long time for this uh, podcast, but I will say this. I did listen to the oral arguments and I was trying to multitask, which wasn't quite easy. And you're right. It did seem to go on 
Um, but, you know, basically what we said, they want to overturn Gruder is what is, is happening here. And so I'm going to think about some of the things, the questions that the justices ask. And so in the UNC case, I remember Justice Jackson pressed uh, students for fair admission uh, for evidence that race was being used as a determinative or singular factor in admissions and whether it was appropriate or even possible uh, to shun aside to correlate between race and other personal experiences like socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. culturally, cultural practices, family history. So that was her pressing them. It's like, show that it is the determining factor here. You haven't shown that it's the determining factor in, 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 in the UNC case. And uh, she had to excuse herself, as you know, from the Harvard case. Right. right. And then uh, on the other hand, Justice Thomas in the UNC case he wanted an explanation of the educational benefits of diversity, given that Justice Thomas himself did not go to a racially diverse school, but still benefited from his academic courses. And then uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett emphasized that uh, UNC, to UNC that Gruder imposed that 25-year, what they said, expiration date on affirmative action programs, and that there need, seems to be no end to, in sight to this, which is part of strict scrutiny, right? Right. And then in the Harvard hearing, um, Chief Justice Roberts questioned whether or not granting, Roberts said, wanted to know whether or not granting a credit-based, so, a credit-based solely on skin color is based on a stereotype. So he was he was like, how is this not stereotypical to say that um, when you, um, if you want a racially diverse student body, how is it not stereotypical to basically say all African-Americans that you are considering think a certain way? And I, cause we are really, we say we don't, but part of that individualized, individualized, mm -hmm. Review is that you are looking at, at statements. You are uh, often you're interviewing people. So there are other things in the process that so you don't get a monolithic view of people of African Americans or Latinx community or you see what I'm saying or American yeah. Indian. Yeah. And yeah. so um, that was his. And then let's see. Um, I'm trying to think other things. Oh, oh, there was one thing. So. The interesting thing is that we think about this case in terms of admissions, but the justice the justices start thinking about, wait a second, how about employers and how does this fit within the affirmative action scheme? And except for, let's say, federal um, contractors. But they said, you know, like one justice said something about, um, you know, we consider the benefits of racial diversity when we hire our clerks, our judicial clerks here in the Supreme Court. And so she wanted to know, you know, like in order to achieve a business need or an economic objective that they had these amicus brief from employers who were saying that a racially diverse workforce was a business necessity. And so she said, so when you considered race neutral means, right? Right. And you and you can't get there. And you've tried and tried. Can you go to race consciousness? At what point can yeah. you? Yeah. And um, 
you know, students for fair admission said, you never can, it's impermissible. But she did raise that question. And then, so they did start getting into uh, voluntary affirmative action programs and, and DEI program by private employers as it relates to race and sex. And so we may get some of that from the Supreme Court saying that they're willing to go, depending on how they rule, that they're willing to look back at Title VI, uh, which deals with all federal, you know, Mm -hmm. um, programs, you know, race, you know, um, and national origin, creed, uh, protected classes here. And also Title VII, which deals, I think I said Title VII, Title VII deals with, you know, um, race, gender, Mm -hmm. uh, religion, national origin in the employment context. So you're kind of getting something from the court that they may be willing to go back and look Mm. at affirmative action programs in private private hiring volunteer programs, not, like I said, federal contractors, uh, which are under executive order. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, you know, it, what I find really interesting personally about these cases is that, um, you know, let's rearrange the deck chairs and would we feel the same way? Right. So, so, you know, if it were, um, you know, all of the other BIPOC groups <laughs> be bringing suit against, um, you know, exclusion, in favor or in lieu of um, white students and Asian mm-hmm. students in this particular case, these particular cases, like how would we feel about that, right? Because we don't seem to question what um, competency um, as a cultural phenomenon, right? Um, I mean, you know, cult- yeah, competency not like okay, I can sew this together, but competency as a con- as a as a construct, mm-hmm. a social construct. We don't, we seem to attach it to some groups and not to other groups. That's true. That's true. Right. And so I always find these kind of um, cases, a kind of interesting thought process around, okay, so, you know, would we feel the same way? Um, would we make the same arguments? Would we um, think about historic, um, the contextual pieces around, like it's only been 14% of the total time of marginalization and discrimination in this country? Like, so, you know, I, yeah, I spend a lot of time thinking about these things, nerd things that we <laughs> we do. So, um, so the oral arguments, happened they went on forever they they were really kind of entertaining um lots of folks were live blogging tweeting the whole bit um so you know the general sense of things mm-hmm. is that um harvard and unc will not prevail under the this current court's makeup mm-hmm. tea leaves so yeah. tea leaves what do you think is going to happen <laughs> Well, can I go back to something else that you you brought up? It's like, yeah. you know, I always, you know, you as chief diversity officers, we are constantly trying to put ourselves in the shoes of other people. Yeah. So, you know, um, there was a voter survey 20, there's been so voter surveys 2014 to 2022. And it basically shows that 60% of Asian American voters have consistently supportive affirmative action action in university admissions, which is interesting. But there's also data that shows, I mean, there's uh, the cooperative congressional, I think, survey election study 
Mm-hmm. And it's a survey and it says, though, you know, we've talked about that women, white women have overwhelmingly been the benefits of affirmative action, but 70% of of white women somewhat or strongly mm-hmm. oppose affirmative action. Yeah, yeah. I think part of that is because the way that we frame affirmative action that when you're asked that question as a woman, oftentimes you aren't thinking that affirmative action applies to you. To you, yeah, yeah. So I just, I yeah. just thought I'd share that with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who, part who, of our nerdness. Yeah. Who's a part of that protected class? And are you speaking mm-hmm. personally? Have you taken a moment of personal reflection versus kind of this societal piece? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because uh, part of that whole piece is like whether or not women, women want opportunities mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I tell my daughter all the time, when we are kind of, she has a big decision to make and I'm like, well, let's figure out how many options you have. You mm-hmm. need at least two options here, right? right? Like, because choice is for me, I always tell her choice is aligned with, um, freedom, right? So yeah. um, is aligned with freedom. Um, you actually have something to choose mm-hmm. from, right? Um, now, sometimes they are like the, the lesser of evils, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, you do still have a choice. And, and I think that um, it, when we are thinking about affirmative action, a lot of times we don't think about some of these choices that some of these programs actually have given mar- historically marginalized populations, including and especially women. Um, right. we just don't think about that. And now we, you know, if you want to work, you work. If you want to stay home, you stay home. If you want to do both, you do both. Like all of those kinds of things. And historically, that wasn't kind of our, you know, country culture. Right. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know, like I said, purely my opinion, everything. I just, I really worry that uh, the more our demographics change, not only um, here within the U.S., but globally, um, the to me, this all ties to power. And um, the more groups that have been in power con- continue to see um, more people uh, who are different from them as they view different, mm-hmm. going to the ballot box to make changes, the more uh, of this rhetoric uh, we're going to hear. Now, this is my yeah. personal opinion, like I said. Yeah. And what really bothers me um is that we continue to buy into this narrative and that the counter narrative to, around uh, or even presenting a unified um, a unified um, opinion that is contrary, you know, to anti-DEI, B, uh, anti-diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging policies, um, that I feel that there's just not a good counter narrative to it. And so uh, one of my pet peeves is around critical race theory. Um, I went to law school because I read Derek Bell and Patricia Williams and I, you know, critical race theory basically evolved from critical race jurisprudence. So you're talking to someone that's read hundreds of books on it. And so when I hear people talk about, we, you know, critical race theory, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's not even the the definition of it. It never was intended. And Derek Bell's rolling over in his grave. But, 
you have a group of people who have redefined it because it yeah. sounds like it's like the word of affirmative action. It's become the dirty word uh, or a dirty phrase and critical uh, race um, theory now mm-hmm. very much, ha- yeah. you know, redefined it, made it their own. And that there's no narrative that positively is giving people an alternative view that is being yeah. heard so that you can make up your own mind. I'm not yes. saying that you have to like it, but Choice. there's not enough out there. I feel like we're losing a battleground around just giving people the opportunity to make up their own mind with providing them with the information and that we are weaponizing Phrases like affirmative action, critical race theory, holistic admissions, race as a factor. Um, You're just weaponizing them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, as we're recording today, you know, the state of Florida has now um, made it illegal to have, you know, DEI offices in their public uh, institutions, higher ed institutions down there. And so, you know. They uh, might be the first, but they will not be the last. They're not the first. I was at the University of Tennessee when the Tennessee legislature passed a uh, law basically saying getting rid of the um, University of Tennessee's um, (sighs) diversity office at Knoxville and some of the other institutions because um, some students had complained that money from student fees, student fees were using being used for sex week. And so what came out of that, the office ended up shutting down, people lost their jobs. Um, there was something where uh, you as a student could check how you wanted your student fee to be used that goes to the, yeah, yeah, I mean, just yeah. drama, right? So they're not the first. But what you start to see is it had a chilling effect and that it was often the white students that said, wait a second, wait a second, you're shutting down the DEI office? It's not good. Wait, I can go somewhere else. And so then you start yeah. to see people change. And purely my opinion, purely my opinion, I just think that um, if you want to see change, do you remember what the, the Missouri football team did? Yeah. When they refused to play. Yeah, they refused Big to play. Big time athletics. Uh, we, not ashamed to say here, many of our um, athletic teams, football teams, those winning football teams are people of color. And so when those athletes started to say, wait a second, we're not going to play unless you do something about this, yeah. policies changed. Yeah. And yeah. it's terrible that it, but it was an economic thing. Economic thing. Because it, re- yeah. it was a recruitment thing. It was an economic thing. And it's terrible that that's what it took. But that is what it took. And, that you know, that, yeah. that's what it took. And so I yeah. looked at Missouri and, you know, all that that was going on there with their president. Very similarly, I was at the University of Nebraska Medical Center when I-424 came through. I think there are like eight states, if I remember. And I provided that in the one of the, um, uh, I think, uh, documents huh. that you're going to link to. That uh, basically cannot use race as a factor or race in admissions and hiring uh, unless, you know, it's under some federal requirement. And uh, so I was at Nebraska when that initiative was on the ballot. I remember sitting in my office and Barack Obama won the presidency. And uh, at that same time, Nebraska passed that I-424 saying that you could not use race as a factor. So I'm going back to what should people be doing or should they have done? We knew that was coming. 
Um, our chancellor was very proactive at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and he did everything that he could trying to educate people. But we kind of knew where the state was going. And so one year out, we started auditing what everybody should be doing now. Admissions policies, pathway, pathway yeah. um, pipeline uh, admissions policies, scholarship policies, retention policies, awards, anything where you consider race as a factor, you should be auditing, doing an assessment, meeting with your attorneys. That's for God, because look, because you threw me off, I did not say my one caveat. None of this should be construed as legal advice. Nothing that I say should be construed as legal advice. And you should check with your institutional or personal attorney. So I forgot to say that one thing. But um, we started working with our attorneys and doing all these audits because we knew what was coming. And the question we ask ourselves is how we could, regardless of the outcome, uh, support and recruit and retain a racially diverse student body. So we had a press release. That's the other thing you should be doing. We had a press release ready if we if the initiative passed. We had a uh, press release ready if the initiative failed. And both of them basically uh, stated our commitment to uh, a diverse student body. Okay. Yeah. So other thing you should be doing. The other thing that we did is we wanted to make sure that all of the admissions committees throughout our, the Academic Health Science Center and the admissions officers were ready to be trained uh, on how to use holistic admissions and support a um, racially diverse and a diverse student body and um, within the bounds of the law. And we planned a, uh, within two weeks, we had a, um, a workshop, day and a half, that rolled out uh, remote links, uh, everything. And we invited, I think, the president of, I think, Washington, the general counsel, uh, where states where it had already passed to ask them how they did it. And we, so we were ready to go. And that's to me, if you want to know what you should be doing, your audits, your assessments, talking to your general counsels, uh, about how can we do this regardless, looking at best practices, looking at states that and some campuses where they all were in California, um, I think Washington change of Michigan, some of the other places where this is already passed on a state level or via executive order, voter initiative, whatever, to see the campuses that are doing it well and what they're doing to do it. And then have your press releases ready to go regardless of the turnout, uh, right. confirming and reaffirming your commitment. Mm -hmm. And then within two weeks at the latest that you are having some initiative, and it can be one of many throughout the year to train and prepare admissions officers and pathway programs and uh, admissions committees um, to um, support a diverse student body legally. So that, that's my piece of advice with five minutes to go. There you go. All right. So, but back to my question, what do you think is going to happen? I refuse to say. <laughs> uh, you know, I am, I believe that um, it's got that <clears throat> race conscious admissions as we know it will be struck down in some way. I don't know if the, they, they will come up with a compromise um, 
and it won't go as far as I think some of the more conservative justices want to go. I think it won't go as well as some of the uh, more liberal justices want to go in that. What I mean by well is that there won't be any change and that they will reaffirm um, Fisher uh, one and two. I'm going to remind you that Fisher two case was Mm -hmm. unique to Texas. Right. But Fisher one is more so the one we use. And uh, so maybe the best that I'm hoping for is some type of compromise. So it's not totally struck down. What scares me is Sandra Day O'Connor saying 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm, Wow. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to drop a link to the first Fisher UT case um, in the uh, chat. And uh, those will also be in the show notes. I can't seem to drop it. <laughs> and I gave what I don't know. I lots of handouts because and I'm, there are lots of a lot. Of course, <laughs> because I, this is me trying to, um, yeah. to the best of my ability, explain the law in less than an hour and talk about fifteen million other things. And I know that that in itself is not always the easiest task for people to understand. So I did want you to have some resources. Uh, also, I did a key concept from a paper that I'd written. I cut and pasted it, uh, key concepts around holistic admissions and race conscious. It gets into what a critical mass is. It defines race neutral policies. So, I, you know, I even define yeah. diversity uh, in a larger context. I don't remember what all the, the terms are, but I knew that, you know, I wanted to just provide some good resources. Great. Well, um, this has been worth the wait, my friend. Um, And so thank you so much. Um, It's been a really fun conversation and very, very enlightening. Um, uh, I was that that uh, that young person back in undergrad who thought she was going to go to law school. And then I kind of ended up working on the Hill was like, I don't need to go to law school. (laughs) So um, but I still, of course, I'm quite passionate about it. So, um, yeah, I think that that, you know, in the next six weeks, we will know we will know. Um, and uh, after 10 years of lobbying early in my, early in my career, if you're suggesting that, you know, the conservative wing of the of, of the court won't be um, all that happy and the liberal side of the court won't be all that happy, then we might actually hit a sweet spot. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, in, in terms of negotiation, it, is it, if everybody's a little unhappy, <laughs> then that's probably, you know, the best we can do. Yeah, that's our path forward. So with that, uh, I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Smith. It's wonderful to see you. And thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the show. I have been hounding her for like... Six, nine months. <laughs> yes, you're right. I, like, I actually started harassing her last summer in anticipation. Once the, the oral argument dates had been um, announced, I was already harassing her to be on the show. So thank you so much um, for spending this time with me. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And hopefully I've provided something that okay. will be of use. And, you know, the key is if you haven't started you know, looking at those policies start, you know, that's the key yeah. And, yeah. and and get ready. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, if this was Sesame Street, I would say today's word is document. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> today's word. 
Today's word is document. All right. Well, this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. It's my guest, Sonia. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Um, be sure to subscribe to the show um, using your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to like us um, and give us a, um, that five-star rating on Apple or whatever podcast uh, platform you're using. Um, we will be back uh, in a couple of weeks. We'll be celebrating um, AAPI month um, with a one wonderful uh, chat about breaking the bamboo ceiling for uh, Asian American women um, faculty in uh, veterinary medical education. So be sure to join us later this month. And with that, I will say goodbye. Bye, everyone.